Please turn your Bibles to this morning's scripture, Psalms chapter 68, verses 1 through 35. If you'd like to follow along using a pew Bible, you can find the passage on 481. Psalm 68, beginning with uh, verse 1. God shall arise, his enemies shall be scattered, and those who hate him shall flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so shall you drive them away. As wax melts before fire, so the wicked shall perish before God. But the righteous shall be glad, they shall exult before God, they shall be jubilant with joy. Sing to God, sing praises to his name. Lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord. Exult before him. Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. God settles the solitary in a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a parched land. O God, when you went out before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, Selah, the earth quaked, the heavens poured down rain before God, the one of Sinai, before God, the God of Israel. Rain in abundance, O God, you shed abroad. You restored your inheritance as it languished. Your flock found a dwelling in it, in your goodness. O God, you provided for the needy. The Lord gives a word. The women who announce the news are a great host. The kings of the armies, they flee, they flee. The women at home divide the spoil. Though the men lie among the sheepfolds, the wings of a dove covered with silver, its pinions with shimmering gold. When the Almighty scatters kings there, let snow fall on Solomon. O mountain of God, mountain of Bashan, O many peaked mountain, mountain of Bashan. Why do you look with hatred, O many peaked mountain, at the mount that God desired for his abode? Yes, where the Lord will dwell forever. The chariots of God are twice ten thousand, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them. Sinai is now in the sanctuary. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. Blessed be the Lord who daily bears us up. God is our salvation, Selah. Our God is our God of salvation, and to God the Lord belongs deliverances from death. But God will strike the heads of his enemies, the hairy crown of him who walks in his guilty ways. The Lord said, I will bring them back from Bashan. I will bring them back from the depths of the sea, that you may strike your feet in their blood, that the tongues of your dogs may have their portion from the foe. Your procession is seen, O God, the procession of my God, my King, into the sanctuary. The singers in front, the musicians last. Between them, virgins playing tambourines. Bless God in the great congregation, the Lord, O you who are of Israel's fountain. There is Benjamin, the least of them, in the lead, the princes of Judah in their throng, the princes of Zebulun, the princes of Naphtali. Summon your power, O God, the power, O God, by which you have worked for us. Because of your temple at Jerusalem, kings shall bear gifts to you. Rebuke the beasts that dwell among the reeds, the herd of bulls with the calves of the peoples. Trample underfoot those who lust after tribute. Scatter the peoples who delight in war. Nobles shall come from Egypt. Cush shall hasten to stretch out her hands to God. O kingdoms of the earth, sing to God. Sing praises to the Lord, Selah. To him who rides in the heavens, the ancient heavens, behold, he sends out his voice, his mighty voice. Ascribe power to God, whose majesty is over Israel, and whose power is in the skies. Awesome is God from his sanctuary, the God of Israel. 
He is the one who gives power and strength to his people. Blessed be God. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. You. It is lovely to um, begin and end October with you, and thank you very much. I, it is a, a privilege, a delight to, uh, to open God's Word to you. A couple of preliminary comments just on the psalm itself as we get into to Psalm 68. Um, my favorite quote from a commentary as I began to, to research this psalm was this, the difficulties of interpreting Psalm 68 are almost legendary. And then there was uh, Adam Clark. You may not know the name Adam Clark. If you were Wesleyan Methodist, you would. Um, he wrote a commentary on the entire Bible. He was one of their major scholars in the uh, 19th century. His commentary on the Bible was a standard work for an entire century and is still um, well regarded and well referenced. And Adam Clark's comment upon this psalm is, the most difficult psalm in the whole Psalter. There are at least 13 unique Hebrew words in the, or very rare Hebrew terms in this uh, psalm that appear, um, if at all, in the rest of the Old Testament, very, very rarely. Um, if you look in your pew Bible, there's a very interesting footnote on verse 30, um, where we have a footnote that sort of does the opposite of what all footnotes ever, ever do. And that is, it says, the meaning of this Hebrew verse is unclear. Now, since the purpose of footnotes is to give you more information and to clarify things, I feel like that's sort of a problem um, as we look at it. And as I looked at the psalm, not only does it have the chiasm in it um, and the structure, and if you look at the, the handout that I, that I put in, you can kind of see the, at least part of the structure of this psalm. If you remember last time, I won't spend as much time on it, um, Hebrew poetry uh, parallels concepts with each other and sort of draws us usually toward a center. Chi is a Greek letter. A chiasm is like an X, like a chi. And the, the point of the, the poem is going to be in the middle. And so this psalm definitely has that structure. But the more I looked at this psalm, the more I realized, and you know, I'll just tell you, I don't get my Hebrew Bible out frequently, but this last month, yes, um, this is a really beautiful psalm. This is a really beautiful poem, and it is really complicated, and it is lovely, and I, I pray that God will open our eyes to it today. Um, I think David even agrees with what I've given you so far. He says that this is for the choir master, and that is mentioned for a few of the psalms, not for a lot of them. He says it's a psalm, a song, and it, it seems to be saying that it not only can be sung, that it's a poem, but if you're going to give it to a musician, give it to a master musician that really knows what he or she is doing. So, Amy, with the songs. Um, so I just wanted to give you that bit of preliminary as we get into it and, uh, and to pray for God's blessing and for him to open our eyes. There are beautiful things for us to see here. So there's a beauty to this and a flow, and I think you'll really enjoy it. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your word, for the way you care for us, the way you speak to us. Father, I pray particularly today that you'd give me your wisdom, that I might see Jesus here and lift him up and exalt him. Father, we pray as your people that you would open our hearts and you would open our eyes, that you would give us the illumination of your spirit, that Jesus Christ would be exalted and that we would be lifted up to honor him. We lift these prayers together in his name. Amen. As I mentioned last time, the primary purpose of a poem is not really to convey detailed information. It's not to give a historical narrative. It is, I think, particularly within the Psalms and in the Bible, the purpose of the poetry sections are to lift your faith. They are to build and raise your faith. This is a Psalm that is about, in the beginning, the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant specifically being moved. And if we think about the words that are at the beginning of this psalm, God shall arise, his enemies shall be scattered, and those who hate him shall flee before him. It carries us back to the 10th chapter of Numbers, where Moses has gathered together the people, and he says, we're setting out for the place which the Lord has said, 
I will give it to you. Numbers 10, verses 29 and following through 35. So they set out from the mount of the Lord, that would be Sinai, three days' journey. And the ark of the covenant of the Lord went before them three days' journey to seek a resting place for them. And the cloud of the Lord was over them by day. Whenever they set out from the camp, and whenever the ark set out, Moses said, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. And so these words, Arise, O Lord, are the ones that are traditionally used whenever the ark is being moved. And this picture of God on Sinai is something that comes up again and again within our psalm. And so I think this setting is appropriate. Now, Israel moved the ark around a lot. That is um, an entire sermon series on itself that's kind of interesting and fun. If we think about when they might have done this, though, I think that there is just one time that particularly fits this psalm. And so I'm going to suggest this to you. In 2 um, Samuel, verse, or chapters 5 and 6, David has been ruling for seven years from Hebron. And he has finally conquered the Jebusite fortress at Zion and captured the city of Jerusalem. And he is moving into the city of Jerusalem and he is setting up Zion as his fortress. And now he has called for the Ark of the Covenant, which for reasons that are really complicated, have been sitting, has been sitting around for 13 years in a place called the house of Abimelech that's about a day's walk from, from Jerusalem. And so David has bid the ark to be brought to Jerusalem, and I think that that is the occasion that we're looking at. And David is already beginning to envision, I think by faith prophetically, already beginning to envision the temple. It's mentioned in verse 29. Of course, the temple's not built during David's lifetime. Solomon does that. But David is already looking forward to it. And so this is the occasion, I think, of this psalm that that huge celebration, or well, at least it began that way, um, that huge celebration of bringing the ark to Jerusalem is the setting for the psalm. 2 Samuel 6, verses 2 through 5. David arose and went with all the people who were with him to bring up the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. God arise, let your enemies be scattered. And the ark is coming to Zion, and this is what the setting of this is. Our psalm continues. As smoke is driven away, so you shall drive them away. As wax melts before the fire, like wind dissipating smoke, the invisible God shows his power over the gods that can be seen. That is the idea that's here when it says, as smoke is driven away, you will drive them away. I've been at stage plays where they use like smoke effects. And it can be so dense sometimes that it's hard to see the players upon the stage. I I had an occasion a few years ago um, visiting Oregon um, to go out to Crater Lake. I don't know if you've ever seen pictures of Crater Lake. It's a lake in the caldera of a a volcano. So the, the volcano erupted long ago. There's sort of this cauldron in the middle of it. There's this lake in it. It's gorgeous, except the day we were there. Um, the day we were there, they had had massive wildfires. There was a question if we would even get into the park, and it looked like a hellscape. This beautiful place covered with smoke. You could hardly see the lake from the rim. There's all this volcanic rock. It looked bad. The smoke looked solid, but it has no substance. Wax looks solid, but it melts away and it's gone. This psalm is about driving out the gods of the nations. And they are like smoke. And they are like wax. And they can obstruct your vision. And they can seem solid. But they are blown away. And they are blown away by the Spirit of God. I guess my homiletics professors would get on me for exegeting words that are not actually in the psalm. There are plenty of them to deal with as we go through it. But one of them that's not here, that fits here, and I think David is pulling in the thought, is the idea specifically of the spirit. The Hebrew word ruach means wind or breath or spirit, just like the Greek word pneuma. It is the wind that blows away the smoke. It is the spirit that dispels these things that keep us from seeing And the other picture of the Spirit here, of course, is it is the fire, and that is explicitly mentioned in the psalm, that melts away the wax. 
This psalm is full of images of the Spirit, pictures of the Spirit of God going forth, conquering. The response of the people is, the righteous are jubilant with joy, verse 3. Down in verse 35, where we're picking up the parallel part of this beginning of the psalm, we see that he gives power and strength to his people, and we ascribe power to him whose power is in the skies. And now we kind of get going with some of the main themes of the psalm as we think about God whose power is in the skies. If you look at verse 4, we're told to sing to God, sing praises to his name, lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord, exalt before him. Now this is a strange phrase, him who rides through the deserts. It's one of the phrases that um, is very rare um, to come across. If you look at some translations, you'll see that it says, um, him who rides through the heavens, and that seems really good. Um, Him who rides through the deserts is a little bit of a a different take. The Septuagint, by the way, which is an ancient Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible into Greek, does translate it, him who rides through the heavens. So the conundrum over the word has been around for a while. Um, The word seems to mean when it's singular, so here we are with Hebrew, Um, a desert or a plain, when it's plural, it means heaven. Um, I think it just means wide open expanse. God is the one who fills all of that. God is the one who rides through even desolate places or who rides through the skies or really who rides through anywhere you can possibly be. He is the one who is over all things and we're the one that exalts in front of him. As I was reading this passage, though, I had um, uh, Beethoven's Pastoral Symphony kind of running through my mind because I was thinking of the scene out of Fantasia. Um, it seems good to be talking about Beethoven until I like, spill the beans about a cartoon from 1940. Um, but if you remember in Fantasia, there's a, an ancient um, like Greek scene where we've got Beethoven's Pastoral Symphony, and we've got centaurs, and we've got... Um, Pegasi, I guess, even though in ancient Greece there was in their mythology only one, but there are a bunch of them in the cartoon. Um, And then we've got this section where we've got Zeus up on the clouds. And he kind of wakes up and he sees goings on on earth and he starts just throwing down thunderbolts and he's tossing them down in that part of the thing. And I think that this is the picture that the psalmist wants us to have because what he's doing here is taking away the name of the pagan gods. Specifically Baal, who is not mentioned in this psalm, and I think his name purposefully is not mentioned in this psalm, one of the gods of the peoples, one of the chief god of the peoples that were in the land where Israel was, was the rider on the clouds. And it's the picture of like the clouds are like a chariot, not so much Zeus like lounging up there, but think about purple clouds of a thunderstorm just billowing up and that being the chariots of the gods that are coming up. And that is the picture that the peoples of these lands had of the power of their gods. And David is coming in and going, no, no, the Lord of Israel, the Lord is the one who is the rider on the clouds. And he's taking away the name Ephesians 1, verses 17 through 22. The God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him in his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and he gave him his head over all things to the church. Our God reigns. And that is the theme that continues to flow through the psalm. His power is in the skies. We get down to verse 30. This is the one with the footnote. Rebuke the beasts that dwell among the reeds, the herd of bulls and calves of the peoples. I mean, it may be a confusing verse. I'm going to suggest this to you. And I'm not sure, by the way, um, this is a 3,000-year-old poem. I'm not sure that there is a standard interpretation for this psalm. Um, But here we go. I think the beast of the reeds are the gods of the Egyptians. Specifically, if we want to think about them, if we want to think about animals, we can think about hippopotami or or crocodiles, which are very, very dangerous. But I think the beast of the reeds are the gods of the Egyptians that are being displaced. It fits the psalm. The bulls and the calves of the peoples, now that one makes sense. 
we know that the peoples of this land that Israel was in built, made little idols, little fetishes of bulls as objects of worship of their gods. The idea of these idols that were imbued with this magical power. And so the bulls and the calves of the people, like that is very clear. God is the one who destroys all those things. And when he talks about getting rid of the beasts of the reeds, I think he's specifically talking about the Egyptian version of heaven. The ancient Egyptian version of heaven, Aru, the field of reeds, which kind of doesn't seem like a great heaven place to me. Um, I, I think you could maybe imagine a better one than that. I guess if you're living in Egypt, places where reeds are very wet, so that would be very nice. But I'm kind of hoping for something better. Verse 30. Trample underfoot those who lust after silver. He scatters the peoples who delight in war take amber from Egypt. And we again have several of these words that are, that are sort of rare in the, uh, in the Hebrew Bible. Um, silver in this day is more rare and more precious than gold. And when it talks about taking amber from Egypt, I went, what is he talking about? What's going on with this word? Why is that there? And I went and I started looking back and I realized in ancient Egypt, amber, which is fossilized tree resin, was burned as incense. And I think that what David is saying is, take the prayers away from them. Take the prayers away from Egypt. Take the prayers away from the pagans. Take the prayers away from these gods that are not gods. They are like smoke. They are like melting wax. And our God takes those things away. Cush will stretch out her hands to God. O kings of the earth, sing to God. Sing praises to the Lord. To him who rides through the heavens, behold, he sends out his mighty voice. And the picture of God who rides on the clouds, his voice is the picture of thunder. And he is the one who sends out his word. And I think that this is the picture that David is pulling in and that John expands on at the beginning of his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not overcome it. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And that is the message that the thunderous voice of God drowns out all of these other things. He's the father of the fatherless, verse 5. He's the protector of widows. He's the one who leads those who are bound with chains out to prosperity. But the rebellious dwell in a parched land. And you know, if we're looking at verse 4 as God is the one who rides through the deserts, he is the one who blesses even those who are in parched lands. And he is the God of the rain. And that again is the title of Baal. The storm God who brings the rain. And he is false. And our God is the one who truly sends the rain. Verses 7 and 8. O oh God, when you went out before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, the earth shaked, the heavens poured down rain before our God, the one of Sinai, before God, the God of Israel. This is the day leaving the mountain that we read about back in Numbers 10. In Exodus 19, we see a picture of when they first get to that mountain, to Sinai. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. So all the people in the camp trembled and Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder and Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai on the top of the mountain. You want incense? God will provide more. He will provide this vision. In this case, he provides the smoke to veil his presence because he didn't want the people to come and see him and die on the spot. And the presence of the Spirit is there and the fire is there. And the wilderness, by the way, is the wilderness of sin. And that sounds like one you could preach. 
but really it's not because it's just kind of a false cognate. Um, our word sin in English is only about a thousand years old. It's from Old English, from a word sign. Um, the word sin in the Bible here, the wilderness of sin, where Mount Sinai, Mount Sinai was located, that is actually the name of the moon god of the area. Sin is the name of the moon god. The wilderness of sin is the wilderness of the god of the moon. I love the hymn we had that was talking about the moon showing its light because of the Lord. fits our psalm perfectly. And what it's saying is, you know the mountain that belonged to that moon god? Our god has taken that. That is his mountain. I love Tom's testimony today of people coming from these different um, religions and the preaching of the gospel and the ministry of it. And that is the picture that is here. That our God is the one who takes over all these things and he will not let any of it stand aside. Bless God in the great congregation, verse 26. O Lord, you are Israel's fountain. And this word fountain, if we look at the Greek translation, the, the Septuagint, it is the same word that Jesus uses in John 4. You remember the woman at the well. Jesus said to her, everyone drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water will I will give him will become in him a spring of water is the word in John, but it is the same word for fountain that's here. A fountain welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, sir, give me this water that I may not be thirsty. Baal is attributed to give him rain, and he doesn't even do that. Our God pours out his spirit. John 7, 37 through 39, on the last day of the feast, so the great day of everyone gathered, like described in the psalm, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were about to receive. The psalm is full of images of the Spirit. We've got the wind that blows away the smoke. We've got the fire. We have the water. This is a picture of the Spirit of God coming in, washing everything clean. Verse 9 of our psalm, rain in abundance. O God, you shed abroad Restoring your inheritance as it languished, your flock is dwelling in it, and your goodness, oh God, you provided for the needy. And again, it's ridiculing the storm God. And it's making the point that God actually sends the rain. And it's making the bigger point that, you know, the rain is not all that important because what God actually sends is his spirit. And this is a psalm that is about the power and the triumph of our God. And our response is in verse 24. Your procession is seen, O God, the procession of my God, my King, into the sanctuary. The singers in the front, the musicians last. In between them, the virgins playing tambourines. Bless God in the great congregation, the Lord. O you who are of Israel's fountains, summon your power, O God, by which you've worked for us. The peoples of the land supposed that their gods did things. Randomly, I guess, like rain comes. The God of Israel works for us. And what the psalm is calling us to is celebration and joy and beauty. The next part of the chiasm here takes us to pictures of cursing and blessings or death and life or maybe even hell and heaven. Um, this is the, the dog and the dove part verses 11 through 13 and then 21 through 23. In verse 11, it says, the Lord gives the word. And the word, word here is another one of these words that doesn't occur very often. It's maybe five, six times in the Old Testament. It occurs only either in poetry or in um, prophecy. And it always refers to something really important that's being said, usually by God. And so David has tooled out this special word for word. And he says, the Lord gives the word the women who announce the news are a great host. The kings of the host, they flee, they flee. That announce the news in the Septuagint is actually the Greek word evangelize. The women are the one who proclaim in this verse, the women are the ones who announce this good news, this evangel, 
this gospel of the Lord. They are a great host, and the kings of hosts, and you can translate that word host or army, and the ESV takes it both ways, but I think there's a parallel there. I actually think the word kings of hosts is interesting because that's, there's no unusual words there, but that's an unusual phrase. We don't read kings of hosts very much. I think that it's mocking them. I think that it's mocking them because there is another phrase that we read a lot in the Old Testament. It's very frequently there, and it is the Lord of hosts. And the Lord of hosts is the one who is the real Lord. The kings of the host, they flee, they flee. They are gone before the word of these women as they announce this news. And so God raises up the voice of his people, and this verse specifically, the voice of these women. You understand this is a 3,000-year-old psalm, and when he is saying that these men of war are fleeing from women, that that is an insult to the army, to the men in this culture. Men of war don't flee from the voice of women, but they flee from the word of our God. And that is the picture of power and majesty that's there. God will strike the heads of his enemies, the hairy crown of him who walks in his guilty ways. At least this is one I don't need to worry about much. So hairy crown is another one of these infrequent words. Um, it seems to be, it's the same word that's used for the Nazarite vow that Samson takes where he doesn't cut his hair. I think there's a cultural tradition here of like, think of kind of wild men, really strong, big hair out there, very tough. I think that's kind of the picture that's here, the crown of him who walks his guilty ways. The Lord gives his word, verse 11. And the tongues of the dogs, verse 23, have their portion from the foe. And those things are paralleled off. And these dogs are not like, my dog, my dog is great. He's loving, he's fun, he's a pet, he's clean. These dogs in this culture, they are scavengers. And the picture that's here, I mean, the Old Testament can be very Old Testament sometimes. The picture here is after a battle. After a battle. Walking over the, stepping in the blood while the dogs eat the corpses is the picture that's given. My father never talked about being in the 82nd Airborne in World War II. He did not talk about the war. I think it was too horrific. I have no doubt that this is a picture of what war would look like, but I think that there's a larger point being made here of what sin looks like, of what deprivation looks like, of what the other side looks like that this is a picture of curse and death. And the contrast with it is a picture of life. So don't get bored with me here because I'm gonna mention another poetry thing, but it really is kind of interesting. There's another chiasm in this, in this psalm that's not just a little one, it's a big one, and it covers verses one through 19. And when I first worked through that, when I was like, I don't understand this because the center of it, I, I'm like, it doesn't make any sense to me. Like, why is that the center of this thing? And it's interesting, you know, as the psalm goes on, he's going to talk about the mountain of Basham, many peaked mountain. I actually think the psalm actually looks like a mountain. It's, if a mountain, a many peaked mountain is not like, you know, the Paramount logo or the Matterhorn or something, like we typically think of a mountain. It's more like the Blue Ridge Mountains where you've got a ridge that goes up and you see like these peaks on it and then it drops off. And so this psalm does that. There's a pretty big chiasm up through verse 19. It's got a center to it. And then you've got like the main center that we're going to be looking at here in a minute. And then it looks kind of like it's going to start another one for the last half of the psalm, but it all falls apart. And I don't think it fell apart because the guy didn't know how to write poetry. David was on it. I think he does that on purpose. He's like showing us the shape of this mountain, Mount Basham, with the structure of the psalm. So if that bored you, it's still kind of cool. But we'll get back into the main part of this. So the center, though, of the, that little bit shorter chiasm, the first half of the psalm, is verses 12 and 13, the last part of verse 12 and verse 13, and itself is a little beautiful chiasm, a um, couple of parallel thoughts and a line in the middle. The women at home divide the spoil, though you men lie down among the sheepfolds, the wings of a dove covered with silver, its pinions with shimmering green gold. And when I first read through the psalm, I'm like, what in the world is God teaching me with this? And I think that this is a picture of blessing and heaven and just lovely. And again, it's a 3,000-year-old psalm, so I don't know what you want to do with the gender roles, but here's what's being described. The women who weren't even fighting in a battle because women didn't fight in battles, spoils are so abundant 
that they are blessed with them and they have the spoil, the spoils of war that, they are, that they're distributing out and they have this abundance. And they're like a dove covered with silver. In a day where silver is more valuable than gold. And it's pinions shimmering with, and here's another one of these rare words, green gold. And what is that? And I think the idea here is the picture of a bird that shimmers. Like if you've ever really looked at a bird and its feathers, like they're iridescent a lot of times. They have these beautiful colors. I think green gold is kind of carrying us to this notion of like the color of a peacock, really. And even if it's a dove, it wouldn't necessarily be white. It would have these different colors that are within the gray and so forth. I thought, well, that's interesting because 3,000 years ago, like we can make lots of shimmering things now, but what could David have used? He could have taught about silver or gold. He could have taught about maybe brocade fabric. And then I realized, no, none of that works because, because this is the color of life. John James Audubon, the naturalist in the 19th century, realized very quickly when he was studying birds that when you kill a bird, its color fades away almost immediately. There's color there, but it doesn't look like the living bird. And I think this is the picture that's being brought in, that, that life shimmers and it's beautiful and it's like this green gold. And these, these women are beautiful. And they're in their homes and there's abundance and they're like gorgeous. And the men... And when you read the, read the part about the men, I think you have to remember who's writing this, David. David, the shepherd boy who became king. David is imagining what is blessing really like. And he says, the men lie down among the sheepfolds. And it is a picture of utter pleasance. Everything pleasant. And that is the blessing. And that takes us into the center of the psalm. So that's verses 14 through 20. If we look at verse 15 and 16, it says, O mountain of God, mountain of Basham, O many-peaked mountain, mountain of Basham. Again, a many-peaked mountain is not like a this, but, you know, a, a ridge. Why do you gaze in envy, O many-peaked mountain, at the mountain that God desired for his abode? Yes, well, the Lord will dwell forever. I'm going to read verse 16 again. Why do you gaze in envy on many peaked mountain at the mount that God desired for, his abo- desired for his abode? Yes, where the Lord will dwell forever. So you might remember Bashan. Over in Psalm 22, there's a real famous verse. We see it in both Matthew and Mark's gospel. Psalm 22, 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is one of the words of Christ from the cross. It is one that we have heard so many times that we may lose track of just how utterly horrific that is. And as you read down in Psalm 22, there's further description. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and a roaring lion. Bashan is the Olympus of the place that Israel is for the peoples that are there. It is the mountain that's the abode of the gods. It is where Baal lives. It is not a nice place. For one thing, there are no cattle there. This thing is a volcanic mountain. It is made of obsidian. It's got clay on it. It's got black rock. It's rough. It's not the place where you're going to ever have cows. What you have are bales. Little Lord, little guys reputed to live there. The place is a desolation, haunted by big cats and jackals. And here we've got the Halloween sermon that you're wanting today, where we get to talk about like this abode of the dead on this black mountain that's out there on the side. And yet this is one of the confusing things about the psalm, because why does God want this mountain? Why does the God want this mountain and to live there forever? Because God wants every mountain. Because God will have every mountain. Because he will not leave any of the mountains to anyone else. It's like taking Olympus away from Zeus. I remember walking through the Vatican Museum and there was a painting that was there where you have a crucifix. And I'm not going to quibble with my Catholic brethren over this. It's the Christian tradition that we have our crosses empty to show the resurrection. But you've got a crucifix and it is standing over a fallen and smashed statue of Hermes. And that is the picture that's here. God is taking 
the mountain away. Even if the gods look on with envy or English Standard Version hatred, they are impotent. And this is, I think, the reason why names of God are so prevalent in this psalm. If you want to look at the, the little handout I gave you, the different rare words are in italics. Names of God that are in the psalm are um, boldface. I didn't know how to verbally go through and talk about this, especially in the time allotted. And it's not like it's unusual to find names of God in a psalm. But wow, in this psalm, look at all the names of God that are here. Look at the way these things are played out. Like, look at how David pulls this in. He is taking away the things from the nations. He is attributing glory to God, Sinai and Bashan, the two mountains. God is laying claim to everything and he can do it. The chariots of God are twice time 10,000, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them. Sinai is now his sanctuary. And I think also this is what's going on with all these weird words that are in this psalm. I think the strange where I can't prove this, it's just opinion, but I think the strange words that are in this psalm, I think these are words from somebody else's mythology. I think these are terms from somebody else's stories. And that David is pulling them in specifically to say, look, we are taking these words from your stories and we are taking them over and we are putting them here in this psalm, this phrase to our God. It's like if I preach to you an orthodox sermon on how Jesus is Lord of chakras and use that language and that concept and talk about Jesus' lordship in those areas, like over your heart. And I think that's exactly what's going on here, that these words are here, these little words, these odd things, because, specifically because, David is taking terminology stories that his hearers would know are part of somebody else's tales, mythology, and capturing it. Verse 17 through 19, the Lord is among them, Sinai is now in the sanctuary. You ascended on high, leading a, co- ho- leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. Blessed be the Lord who daily bears us up. God is our salvation. He is the one who delivers us. This is considered to be a messianic psalm because Paul quotes this verse in Ephesians 4. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But he also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who ascended above, far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. I do think Paul is capturing a bit of the spirit of things with this because... Like going to hell and back is common in other mythologies of other religions. The oldest narrative story that we have in the world, the Gilgamesh epic, Gilgamesh is a Mesopotamian hero who goes to hell and does some things and rescues some people and comes back out. He meets a serpent along the way that gives him a lot of trouble and the serpent steals the tree of life from him. So there's some themes there that I think they may have borrowed from us to begin with. But that is the oldest story that we've got in in human history. And we've got all these other people that have been to the underworld, Orpheus and Odysseus and Heracles and Theseus, Aeneas. There's like a revolving door going in and out of the place. And there are people that look at this verse in Ephesians where where our verse is quoted and are saying, okay, this is a Christian version of this. He descended into hell. Jesus. And I'll just tell you here, I'm a little uncomfortable with this one because... There is a doctrine called the harrowing of hell. And it is about the idea of Jesus victorious after the crucifixion, going into hell, rescuing a bunch of people there and taking them back out. Who believes this? The Orthodox Church, the Catholic Church, the Anglican Church, and the Lutheran Church. And kind of the idea is that believers under the Old Testament didn't really get into like full-fledged heaven because problems. And so they were living in sort of the better neighborhood of hell, but without torment. And so Jesus goes down there and grabs them and rescues them and brings them back out. Now, over here in the Reformed faith, one of the things we would point out to our brethren is there are not really good neighborhoods in hell. And we tend to take that phrase in the Apostles' Creed as the punishment that Jesus gave while on the cross. But that idea of the harrowing of hell is definitely the concept that gets pulled out of that verse in Ephesians. Also, a couple of verses out of 1 Peter 3 and 4 that are, that are I think, not so difficult to interpret, but they're a little unclear in the way they're written. 
I don't think there's any such thing. I don't think there's any such notion. I think Jesus, in the day he died, went to paradise, but it wasn't like a lesser grave paradise, and sure, not hell, and was hanging out with the thief from the cross and Abraham and Moses and the guys that were in a place of blessing in the bosom of Abraham, and he was indeed victorious, but it wasn't a harrowing of hell. It was Jesus being there together with his people in blessing, and then he rises triumphantly. And I think you can substantiate that one from the New Testament, also from the Old Testament. But this idea of taking away all the stuff that's in the other world, in the other God's domain, is definitely in our psalm. And so we've got Colossians 1, 13 through 16. The Father has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of the Son of his love in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And that is the power of Jesus Christ. And he is the one who ascended on high, verse 18, leading a host of captives in his train, giving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. There is a little difference in emphasis between Paul and David here, by the way. Paul takes this verse as saying that uh, Jesus gives gifts to us. David is saying that we are the gifts. That we are the gifts. That he comes and he takes us and he brings us to himself as a gift to himself. And what is the gift that he gives to himself? Men. And the word men here is not, and I'm not making a modern gender point. Stay with me for a minute on this. The word men is not just referring to male men. Um, Ish would be the Hebrew word for that. And then man, ish, woman, isha, like man and woman. You can hear the difference. This is Adam. Adam. Adam, it is the name of our humanity, it is the name of our creation, it is the name of us in the image of God. And that is who he goes and brings his own image up, humanity. And I think the problem that you may have as you look at this verse is you kind of think that God created Adam and Eve. And that is, you know, not technically like accurate. Let's look at Genesis for a minute. Genesis 1.27, so God created Adam in his own image. In the image of God, he created Adam. Male and female, he created them. He created both of them. But they got one name. And if you don't catch it in Genesis 1, Moses circles back in Genesis 5 to drive the point home. Genesis 5, 1 and 2. When God created Adam, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them Adam when they were created. That is the name of our creation. That is the name of our humanity. That is the name of us in the image of God. We are Adam, male and female, all of us. That is the picture that is there in Genesis. It is only after the fall wrecks everything. We are divorced from the animals. We are divorced from each other. We are divorced from God. Everything is broken apart. Only after everything is wrecked by the fall. Only after that. And God then begins to put things back together and promises redemption and brings healing. Only after that does Adam, the man, call his wife by another name as a response in faith to God's promise that she is Eve, the mother of the living. And he's saying, I believe you. When you're telling me that out of death life can come, I believe you. And she is the mother of the living. And there's something very, very beautiful in that and very redemptive. But in the day of our creation, we are in the image of God. And that is what Christ has captured. And he is brought up. And that is the promise and the blessing that God is collecting us in his image for himself to be his people. He brings us to himself. Snow falls on Zalman. The name of the mountain there emphasizes the blackness of it, the obsidian rock. And there's that artistic picture of this black mountain with white snow that's on it. God is the one who destroys 
the pagan gods. He destroy, destroys Baal. He destroys the one who rides in the heavens. He destroys his mountain. He takes away from him his name. He takes away from him his voice, the thunder. God is the true God, and there is one more false god in our psalm to be destroyed. One more to be destroyed. Blessed be the Lord who daily bears us up. God is our salvation, verse 19 and 20. Our God is a God of salvation, and to God the Lord belong deliverances from death. And this word death is again one of these unusual words, and it refers specifically to Mot, who is the God of the dead, also to the underworld, which is Mot's domain. And he is the one who delivers us from the pagan God, because you know what our God says? He says to the pagan gods, you don't even own death. You don't even own death. You don't even own that. That is also mine. That is also mine. And if I want to deliver people from it, I can do it. And the Lord is the one who brings deliverances from death. Capital D, death, as a title of an false deity, a Hades, a false place. Our God reigns. Our God reigns. Blessed be the Lord, verse 19, who daily bears us up. Our God is our salvation. And finally, this gets us to the Reformation Day sermon that you always wanted. And you're like, please don't start another sermon at this point. And hopefully you've enjoyed this one to this part. But I want to talk just for a second, just for a brief moment about Martin Luther's hymn. Because this is Reformation Day, or rather tomorrow is. And Luther uh, just... The blessing that God gave to his people through him and his ministry, amazing. And I love his hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Is, it's a gorgeous hymn. And I know that he was looking at Psalm 46, not our psalm, when he was putting it together. I would have one small quibble with that hymn as it would relate to our psalm. And that is that while that vision of God is a fortress and a refuge and a strength is very beautiful and very biblical, that is not our passage. In our passage, God is not a fortress. In our passage, it's God is a conquering army that is sweeping out over all the earth and taking away everything that he wants. We are not the ones that are holed up in a fortress. This is a mighty army that the gates of hell don't prevail against. But Luther is spot on about everything else about our psalm because his word goes out. He destroys the devil, the enemy. He triumphs. Love the psalm. Very beautiful nicely summarizes our passage here in front of us. Our God reigns, and he will not allow anything else not to be underneath his feet, underneath his dominion, underneath his kingdom. And he gives joy, and he gives life, and he gives you beautiful green and silver and the ability to rest among the sheepfolds. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the blessings that you've given us, for the ways you care for us, for your triumph, that you have delivered us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the Son of your love. And we lift up our prayers, and we lift up our psalms, and we lift up our songs, and we would lift up our tambourines and sing to you glory and praise and majesty and honor to him who sits on the one throne now and forever. Blessings.